Welcome to Kidney Commute, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation, driven by the interprofessional team with emphasis on the patient voice. In each episode, we will incorporate the perspectives of the different members of the kidney team as well as the patient. Join our huddle on all things kidney health and allow new perspectives to inspire collaboration in your practice. Eligible listeners can earn credit along the way. The Kidney Commute, a continuing education podcast planned by the team for the team. Welcome to the Kidney Commute, an interprofessional NKF podcast. I am Dr. Kelly Beers, a nephrologist at Albany Medical College in Albany, New York, and it is my pleasure to be leading today's discussion about women's health and the kidney. Today, we will focus on women's health and chronic kidney disease, and in the next episode of the Women's Health, we will focus on issues specific to women with kidney transplants. And now I'll ask the panelists to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Silvisha. I'm a transplant nephrologist at the University of Cincinnati, and both my clinical and research uh, interest uh, and focus is a lot on women's health in kidney disease, and I'm very excited to be a part of this podcast. Hi, I'm Sarah Stabenow. I'm a nurse and have worked in the dialysis industry for 16 years. Hi, my name is Heather Hames. I am a pharmacist at the University of Cincinnati, and I take care of patients who have received kidney transplants, both in the outpatient setting and in the um, inpatient setting as well. Hi, my name is Amanda Trinzi, and I am a kidney disease patient. Um, I have polycystic kidney disease and am a six-year kidney transplant uh, recipient. Great. So, Amanda, let's start with you. When you began thinking about starting your family, how did your kidney disease factor in? Thanks, Kelly. I would say that my kidney disease actually was the catalyst to me starting to think about my family planning. As a woman in my 20s, um, I wasn't exactly rushing to have children straight out of you know graduating college and law school. Um, I had started working in my law firm um, for a year. I got married and I went uh, in to see my nephrologist and my labs sh- had shown that my kidney function had decreased significantly. And so within that discussion was, well, what are your, what are your plans for, you know, having a family? Because clearly um, you're on a path of decline for your native kidneys and um, you should probably start thinking about what you want to do. And so that really was the start of my family planning journey and I was lucky enough to uh, be able to have a, a natural pregnancy um, very soon thereafter. Did you feel that your health team was supportive of your starting a family? I would say that, it, you know, I was appreciative that they raised the issue with me, uh, you know, because again, being in my 20s, maybe it's not something that would have uh, initially come to the forefront of my long term planning. But I would say my experience in, in getting guidance for family planning with kidney disease and and family planning post kidney transplant has been somewhat difficult. At the beginning of my journey, I would say my nephrologist was very conservative and worried about me attempting to have a natural pregnancy. I went through a lot of consults, second opinions, third opinions, fourth opinions, in gaining my own knowledge of what could happen? What could the consequences be to me, to the baby, to my kidney? 
uh, my native kidneys and then thereafter my my transplanted kidney. And it took a lot of information gathering to be able to come to the table with my doctor to kind of have an educated discussion. And so I would say, I don't want to necessarily say there wasn't support, uh, but it was a a tug of war back and forth and coming to a final decision that we were both comfortable with. Yeah, absolutely. Were there any positive or negative experiences with various care team members that you'd want to speak to directly? Sure. I would say that being, you know, a woman desperate to want to have kids at that point in my life, hearing someone on the other side say, this might just not work for you. It might just be too hard. Why don't you just adopt? Or why don't you just do this or have a surrogate um, and foreclose the opportunity was, I mean, gut-wrenching for me. I, you know, many a car rides home from the doctor crying to my mother about, am I ever going to be able to have children um, because of my kidney disease? I don't feel like the doctors think it's possible. So I would say, in, in dealing with a healthcare provider, meeting someone that understands a woman's right to reproduce at, you know, for, first and foremost is extremely vital. And then counseling them on, you know, the risks and their specific situation, and then ultimately letting them make the decision. I think that's a really helpful approach that I didn't always receive. Amanda, that's very moving. I can't imagine having to go through that. And actually, it's a great transition to our next panelist. Sylvie, how do you provide family planning counseling to your female patients with chronic kidney disease? So as a physician, I think uh, a lot of focus is uh, obviously on knowledge and awareness. So with kidney disease, there is a decline in reproductive function, and that occurs with this disruption of hypothalamic gonadal axis. So the higher your creatinine or the, the worse uh, your, your kidney disease is, the, your fertility gets impacted um, in the same proportion. Uh, you may have uh, abnormal menstrual cycles, you have sexual dysfunction, you have um, anovulation, and this uh, limits uh, the ability to start a family. Um, and uh, also, uh, <clears throat> so I think that is one thing which I talk to my patients that there, there is, um, you, you, may, you may experience decline in reproductive function. However, that does not mean that you cannot have children, you can still have children. One other important thing is uh, that there is a high risk of adverse maternal and fetal outcomes with kidney disease. And at the same time, there is risk of progression of kidney disease. And this risk is directly proportional to your to the severity of kidney disease. So what I mean by here is that if you are in stage four or five of kidney disease, which is a higher stage, which means if you have a higher creatinine or a lower GFR, your risk of get, developing these adverse outcomes is higher. Like for example, if your creatinine is, <clears throat> if you're in stage four, your creatinine is in the two-ish or early three-ish range, you do have a very high risk of getting preeclampsia, a very high risk of getting preterm births. There is also high risk of stillbirths, uh, neonatal mortality. So I think it's important to counsel them about these risks. Um, at the same time, there's also risk of uh, progression of kidney disease, which we as nephrologists are really worried about. And a lot of times they may 
end up needing dialysis during the course of their pregnancy or after uh, they deliver. So I think it's, I counsel women about all these things, the adverse outcomes and how kidney, kidney disease can impair their reproductive function. But at the same time, you know, I think a lot of focus should be done on shared decision-making. And I totally agree with Amanda. Uh, and I always advocate for this, that we should not have a paternalistic attitude when we are uh, talking to our patients because childbearing is very important in women's life. And this does not change for women with kidney disease. So as physicians, as healthcare providers, we should give all, we should put out all the information out there. Well, these are the risks and then let uh, patients make their own decision and be supportive uh, of their decision. So that's what my approach has been. And that's what I advocate for, and I educate other uh, healthcare providers as well. There is a lot of um, unawareness in this area. A lot of research has been done, which shows that uh, kidney doctors are not confident in discussing women's health issues. Uh, so that is that is obviously one area which needs a lot of advocacy and awareness. So yes, so th that is one thing. And I think the other thing which I always say is that kidney transplant does improve outcomes. So if, um, if you are in the childbearing age, if, if, if there is a lifespan at which you, you can have children, so if you do have time, if you have a donor there, it may be better to wait uh, to conceive just because the outcomes are better. You do have a low, your risk of uh, developing progression of kidney disease also lowers. Uh, so that is another thing which I tell my patients about. And the third and very important thing is regarding contraception. Uh, so <clears throat> with, with kidney transplant, we always counsel about contraception just because a lot of these women are on self-sept, which is teratogenic. So there is, uh, there is a lot of counseling uh, done with regards to, with regards to that. Uh, however, with, with women who are on kidney disease, sometimes the counseling does not um, come into place. And one of the reasons is because it is believed that women with kidney disease may not get pregnant because of uh, impaired reproductive function. So I make it a point to counsel them. Uh, if, if the pregnancy is not desired, they should use contraception. And then I make an appropriate referral to the um, gynecologist as well, which can assist in providing the most optimal contraceptive option. Thank you, Sylvie, that was fantastic. I just wanna circle back to Amanda quickly because Sylvie made an important point, which is that transplant can really improve a woman's fertility. And Amanda, you had your kidney transplant after your first pregnancy. Can you just speak to that, how that decision was made um, and, and that experience? Sure. And that's a really good point because it was a point of, it was a, a decision factor, you know, in, in my decision to move forward with getting pregnant in my first pregnancy, which was before I was transplanted. And I have polycystic kidney disease, which you, you all probably know, or don't maybe don't know, but you know, it's not, no one knows how it progresses. So there's not like a crystal ball that says, oh, your creatinine is going to be at one six for the next four years, and then you'll get your transplant and you'll be good to go. So it's very unknown. And, and, you know, like Sylvie said, um, your, your fertility can change over the years. And I just felt the best decision for my family. And after meeting with high risk um, maternal fetal medical uh, physicians, um, along with what I know about 
polycystic kidney disease was to take the chance and have a natural pregnancy with uh, kidney disease and take that risk that my PKD may progress more quickly, which it did because I delivered a healthy baby in April with a similar creatinine as when I got pregnant. And soon thereafter, I, I started you know, feeling not good and went in again for labs and my creatinine had skyrocketed. And a year later I was receiving my transplant. I do think that the pregnancy accelerated my kidney disease, um, but it also accelerated my transplant, which allowed me to go on to have two more healthy children during my childbearing years. So that was the risk I was willing to take and I took it and it, and it kind of worked for me, um, but might not work for others because there's a lot of different factors that also go into getting your transplant and, you know, being successful in transplant and be able to get an organ. So I, re- I recognize that I was very lucky and not everyone's decision is the same. And like you've both mentioned, the shared decision-making is so important and really having those interprofessional and interdisciplinary conversations with providers, with OB, with maternal fetal medicine and with nephrology. And of course, focusing on what the patient really wants and desires for their family. Sarah, in your role as a nurse, what are your female patients asking you? How do you counsel them? And when do you refer them to other members of the interprofessional team? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. So I get a lot of questions from the female patients really around, you know, the the ability to continue to have sexual relations. Um, They often want to know, you know, is anything going to change with that now that they have, you know, kidney disease? Maybe looking at, you know, is their drive going to change? Are they going to have other issues? Maybe things like dryness. So a lot of questions surrounding that, but also, you know, I have encountered patients who do want to go on and have a family, um, such as what we're talking about now. And so for me, you know, it's really important as a nurse that I treat every patient individually, like that is, is very important because every patient is different, but I need to make sure that this patient receives education. You know, do they understand potentially the risks of wanting to start a family or become pregnant. And so, you know, once, once their questions are answered in that regard and they've received the education, my role kind of switches a little bit. You know, if a, if a woman comes to me and says, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to have a family. I understand all the risks or implications. I kind of become the advocate, right? So now I support that person in continuing down the path that they want to pursue, obviously have conversations with the nephrologist if that hasn't already happened, but also with other IDT members. So we've got social workers, dietitians, other people that, you know, they can speak to about concerns that they have, but really, you know, making sure that the people on the team understand what this person's desires are. And so, if they're not getting their needs met, then it's also kind of up to me to help support them and find someone who, who may get their needs met. So that's my job as a nurse, really education um, and then advocating for, for what the patient really truly wants. Great. Heather, what medication changes are recommended in women with chronic kidney disease who are planning to start a family or who are already pregnant? Thanks, Kelly. 
So a lot of women who are planning to start a family are already pregnant, like whether or not they have chronic kidney disease, they want to make sure that they're on medications that aren't going to hurt their child. And so um, that's something that for patients with chronic kidney disease who might be on different medications than um, other women might be on, then that's something that we need to make sure that um, we can make sure they're on the right things. And so one of the common disease states that can lead to chronic kidney disease is high blood pressure. And a lot of patients are on different types of blood pressure medications that aren't, um, that we don't wanna continue during pregnancy. And so these can be the ACE inhibitors and ARBs, so lisinopril and lalopril, Losartan, stuff like that, that we not only use to prevent high blood pressure and decrease their blood pressure, but also help prevent the progression of kidney disease. These can lead to birth defects. And so that's something that we wanna stop and any woman who wants to start um, planning to get pregnant or also if they do find out that they're pregnant and they are on this medication. So some of the common medications that we can switch them to include a beta blocker called labetalol, um, nifedipine, and methyl dopa. Those are the three medications that are the most um, researched in pregnancy and they do not cause any birth defects. And so um, that's what we want to switch our patients to um, and, and make sure that um, they are on those as quickly as possible. One other medication are diuretics that we use in a lot of patients. And so this, these aren't necessarily uh, medications that cause birth defects, but they can limit the growth of the child. And so that's something that we just want to use on a case-by-case -case scenario and make sure that they don't need to be on any type of diuretic to help you know, the kidneys work a little bit better, then that's something that we can stop. The other thing that we want to think about, like Sylvie was talking about earlier, some complications that can happen in patients who have kidney disease include preeclampsia. And so preeclampsia is high blood pressure and proteinuria. And so patients who have chronic disease, um, chronic kidney disease can have both of these. And they can also progress into preeclampsia quicker than patients who don't have kidney disease. So there are some medications that um, we start in some women um, to help prevent preeclampsia. And so that can be a baby aspirin. That's something that is easy to take and doesn't have too much risk with that. And so that's something that we can start in a lot of these patients. Um, and the other thing that we can do is starting patients on um, blood thinner medications to help prevent any increased risk of clots. And so a lot of these, any pregnant woman, whether or not they have kidney disease or at an increased risk of clot, and specifically with kidney disease, that's even higher. And so that's something that can lead to complications and can potentially um, be life-threatening for both the mother and the child. And so um, those are some things that we can add to help, you know, prevent any of these complications for these patients. Great. Now, a lot of our female patients of childbearing age with kidney disease have autoimmune diseases such as lupus or other glomerular diseases and might be on some immunomodulating medications. Um, what advice do you have for them as far as how medications might need to change prior to them becoming pregnant? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so thankfully steroids, so prednisone is actually okay to use in patient, in patients who are pregnant. And so a lot of times we are using steroids for lupus and different types of autoimmune disorders. So we can continue these during pregnancy. 
um, some of the other medications like mycophenolate that can lead to birth defects. So if patients are on something like that, then we want to um, get them off of that and then start them on another medication. Azathioprine is very similar to mycophenolate and that's okay in pregnancy. And then hydroxychloroquine is another medication that a lot of patients use for lupus. And that one's okay to continue in pregnancy as well. So it's definitely something that we want to look at and make sure if there's any medication changes that we need to make, we can, but thankfully there are still options out there to help, you know, still treating those autoimmune diseases and making sure that the, like Sylvia um, was saying earlier too, about progressing with the kidney disease during pregnancy. And so we want to keep them on these medications to hope, hopefully help prevent progression of kidney disease during, during pregnancy. Absolutely. And I just want to add when I am counseling my patients um, who are thinking about trying to start a family, I definitely want to see their kidney disease is stable because they're going to be at lower risk before they enter pregnancy. If they're, if they have a autoimmune disease, but it's in remission and I want to make sure they're stable on their medication regimen, ideally I'd like to change those medications before they actually try to conceive because that's going to be safer for mom and baby. I completely agree with that. Yeah, definitely. If they're planning on starting a family, we want to go ahead and switch them off of medications before that way it's a lot easier. And I tried to get my patients to see high-risk OB for a preconception counseling appointment as well, just to make sure that we have that interdisciplinary support for our patients before they start that journey. Kelly, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you have a length of time that you recommend women, you know, go off their medication and get stable before be before you know trying to become pregnant. I know when I switched, my goal for myself personally was, you know, four to six months. Yeah, I usually say three months, um, and that's what MFM has said as well. When I've referred my patients to them, Sylvie, what do you try to tell your patients? So I usually say at least six weeks before they start attempting conception, they should be off the teratogenic medications, or when we make that switch. But uh, that's the minimum. That's what I have usually recommended. Uh, with regards to disease activity, uh, it should be uh, it should not be an active lupus nephritis or, or an active GN. Then they should be at least six months. Um, they should be in remission before if with with kidney disease, they should be in remission before they start attempt, attempting conception. Yeah, absolutely. Six weeks is what I've said is the minimum uh, before make, after we make those changes. Unfortunately, I think we've all had the patient who comes in and is still on their lisinopril and has just found out they're pregnant. So I think part of the what we can do as a healthcare team is make sure we're talking to all of our women of childbearing age about this from the very beginning. So if we have patients who we know could potentially become pregnant, then we want to talk to them about what their plans are. Do they want to become pregnant? If they do not want to become pregnant, what are they doing to prevent pregnancy? And if they are potentially thinking about pregnancy, what can we do to, to really optimize their medications and their disease state before they actually become pregnant? So we don't have that situation where they have just discovered they're pregnant and they're on a medicine that could potentially be teratogenic. I think that is a very important point you made only because something that Sylvie had brought up earlier too. There are so many misconceptions out there um, just by people, you know, reading things on the internet or I heard from, you know, my friend's mom, whatever it may be. Um, it's important to bring these topics up in the beginning so that everybody can be prepared and, and the patient does have an understanding of 
what potentially could happen even if they are trying or not trying to become pregnant. Absolutely. And to what Amanda and Sylvia were talking about earlier, there's definitely a lot of providers and healthcare team members who are not comfortable talking about this and don't feel that they have the resources they need to really give the appropriate guidance to their patients in these situations. So hopefully things like this initiative with these podcasts from NKF and other continuing medical education opportunities we can allow our care team members to become more educated on women's health and kidney disease and the kind of counseling that these patients really should be getting from the very beginning and getting nephrologists more comfortable with the idea of our patients having the families that they wanna have in the timeline that they wanna have them. Uh, I think we really need to focus on shared decision-making and Amanda did share her perspective that that was one of the one of the challenges which she faced initially uh, in her journey, healthy pregnancies. But I think that is very very important that we should uh, let patients make their own decision and be very supportive of their decision um, as well. So that is one thing I wanted to emphasize on. Yes, and I and I also think data right because I'm a I'm a data person. I found a lot of solace in the statistics and the, the studies I read and the National Transplant Registry it was like a godsend to me in my journey because going to an appointment and just hearing, yeah, probably isn't a good idea. My next question is going to be, well, why? <laughs> well, why not? And what are what is the likelihood? And okay, how like what percentage are we talking here that, you know, get this or don't get this or, you know, have this outcome? So being able to provide the patient with like somewhere to go to see data or review studies, et cetera, is I, I felt was very important um, rather than just kind of blindly following conclusions that perhaps didn't align with what your desires were at that point in time. And I just want to say that it is so impressive that you advocated for yourself and have been able to have the family you want to have and at the same time, taking care of your own personal health. And it's, it's just, you're an outstanding patient and you should be really proud of what you've been able to accomplish and the family that you've made for yourself. Thanks, Kelly. I appreciate that. One last question for the group. How do you think the interprofessional team can work better to support women with CKD? We can go around and I'll ask Sylvie to start. I think, um, I think that's, I always advocate for interdisciplinary team uh, because it's a high-risk pregnancy. So um, we need to make sure there is maternal fetal medicine expertise there. There is a nephrologist there, a transplant nephrologist if, it, if a woman has a history of kidney transplant. And at the same time, it's also important to have a neonatologist. So uh, because uh, majority of these babies are preterm, um, also, um, the higher your CKD stages, the higher is the chance of having a preterm delivery, which is about 80%. So uh, I think um, it is extremely, extremely critical uh, to have a multidisciplinary team approach and at the same time, even counsel patients that they should del deliver in a tertiary care center. Absolutely. And I want to also acknowledge Sylvie has done some excellent research and has written a ton of fantastic papers that I would encourage all of our nephrology 
colleagues to look up um, and educate yourself on a lot of the challenges of taking care of women of childbearing age with chronic kidney disease. Um, and you'll get a lot of important information on how to best counsel your patients from the, from the work that she's published. So thank you, Sylvie, on behalf of the, the field of women's health and nephrology. Thanks, Kelly. Appreciate, appreciate it. Thank you. Sarah, what recommendations do you have for how the interdisciplinary team can work better together to support women with kidney disease? Yeah, you know, it, it's most certainly important for everybody to come together uh, because, you know, we all have our own expertise as well as former experiences that we can contribute or bring to the table. Um, but really, you know, it's about increasing the collaboration between everyone, which ultimately leads to improved communication among the members. So overall, you know, it is to benefit the patient um, and to really sit down and create a plan of care to be able to support the patient. I, I don't necessarily, you know, have a recommendation. It's more just a statement in the fact that, you know, we do need to work together um, to make sure the patient is feeling supported. Fantastic. Heather, what would you like to add? I would just like to say that I completely agree with what Sarah was just saying. Like, I think communication is huge and being able to bring that team together is really important. So I know here at the University of Cincinnati, we don't necessarily have a pharmacist that is part of like our, nef just our plain nephrology team. We do have a transplant pharmacist that um, is available for, you know, patients who have had a transplant that are wanting to get pregnant or are getting pregnant. And so I think it's important to have those relationships to where I can build relationships with the nephrologist. That way, if they do have questions about their patients, then I'm always available to answer any questions and, you know, be there to help keep that line of communication open. Because I think it is important to have different disciplines, you know, and their expertise be able to be involved in patient care and recommendations. And so I think just having that communication open and building those relationships with different um, disciplines is super important. Absolutely. Okay, Amanda, can you finish us up? How do you think the team can work together to support women with kidney disease? Sure, so I agree with everything everyone just said. And I think everyone hit the nail on the head with communication because without communication, the right hand has no idea what the left hand is doing. And that's problematic in a care situation. But I would take it one step further and I would try to formalize it more because my own personal situation, I'm very lucky in my third pregnancy, I found you Kelly um, as you know, my nephrologist to work with as someone that specializes in this type of care. For my other two pregnancies, I did not. And my nephrologist, when I became pregnant, was literally like, I'll see you when you deliver. Good luck. Let me know if you, you know, let me know if you're in trouble, which was like really hard to, to deal with. Um, and I was the one running interference and connecting everyone and hunting people down, checking my labs. And that was really, really difficult. And so I would propose to take it one step further and formalize some type of some type of working group amongst the interdisciplinary practices that maybe you have a, a Teams meeting or a, a virtual call or a conference call once a month um, when you have patients that you're working together because I don't think there's enough knowledge of how everything meshes together and communication. And I don't know if that's even practical as the non-doctor on this call. But as the patient on the call, sometimes it can feel like it's hopeless in 
and getting everyone on the same page. And, and Kelly, that's that was not with this case because you and and my OBGYN were phenomenal in doing that. But I think locally, each community has to figure out how to do that. Well, thank you. And I think that's a great idea. I think that communication is, is so important. And I think that's really what we want to, the message we really want to hit home is how important it is for the interdisciplinary team to really communicate, to take patient preferences into account, really do patient-centered care and shared decision-making and work together on these complicated situations. And with that, I'd like to thank all of our panelists for their time and expertise given to this episode. This is the first in a series of three episodes exploring topics related to women's health and the kidney. Look out in the spring for our second episode where we'll discuss transplant and pregnancy. In the meantime, please be sure to check out new episodes of The Kidney Commute coming out monthly and keep letting new perspective inspire collaboration in your practice.